Hi, everyone. So today on the show, I'm chatting with my grandmother, my Nana, and this is a really special episode for me. She shares bits and pieces of her life, her growing up as a Black girl, and just recalling things from the civil rights movement and segregation. And we just had a moment and it was so amazing to be able to hear her voice, hear her story and listen to her and hold space for her. And I love her so much. She played a major role in raising me and has just been my biggest prayer leader. I remember what we were talking one day and she was just saying how she never stopped praying for me and how her prayers have been answered just because I came out on the other side of so much darkness and trauma and sadness and I was lost and my grandmother's prayers covered me. I'm just honored to be able to sit and talk with her and I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Have a great Sunday. Take care. Hi, I'm Alex L and I write books for a living. The Hey Girl podcast was created with sisterhood and storytelling in mind. Hey girl. Hey girl. Hey girl. Hey girl. Join us as we journey through sharing together. Hey girl. Hey girl. I guess I should say hey Nana since I'm talking to my Nana. (laughs) Yeah. How you doing Nana? I'm fine, Alex. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm really glad to have you on my podcast. I definitely wanted to just talk with you about social justice, Black lives, everything that's going on right now, and everything that you've, you know, walked through and seen in your lifetime. But before we do that, please let the Hey Girl listeners know who you are and what you do. Well, I'm Alexandra's Nana, because we don't use the G word around here. And what do I do? I work for NIH, and I am a office manager. Right now, we know that an uprising is happening, and you and me and Ryan have had plenty of conversations about race and being Black in America and the different movements that have happened in your lifetime. And what are the parallels between now and what you've witnessed? And how do you feel about everything that's happening right now? Well, it's the same. Mm-hmm. Every, I don't know, if you want to say few years or however you want to say, it's in same March and nothing changes. And from police brutality, which if you think about it, it started back during slavery time when they had the overseers of the slaves. It was the same thing. They watched them and they got out of line or tried to attempt to free themselves. They got beaten. So it's the same. And that was 400 years ago. And we're still facing the same systemic racism in this country. From the civil rights movement, when Dr. King became the spokesperson and formed this, it was because of the same thing, the treatment of black people not being respected. But the difference then versus now, to me, he had backers, Harry Balafonte, Aretha Franklin, and some of the other ministers, the church Mm -hmm. was by behind it and they funded it and they hurt the local economy economically with 
striking uh, with the trash folks that, you know, the black people that, and then boycotting the buses. Now, Rosa Parks was not the first one, and forgive me, I can't remember the lady's name, but, and it happened up in New York, who got tired of it, and so, and then the housewives who had to clean their own homes, you know, they went and picked up the maids and all of that. So this is not the first march that we have had to make things change with the civil rights movement because of the death of Dr. King and that kind of change. When Johnson got in, he's the one who signed the civil rights bill, not John F. K. I think he was kind of not comfortable having Dr. King telling him what to do. But after he was killed, uh, Johnson said, we have to do something. So that's how that got passed. And then you go on with the other marches, the Poor People's Campaign, where people marched and built Resurrection City on the mall because of no help from the government to help these people get the same chance in America. And I don't mean those people, our people, the same chance as white America. After Reconstruction, after the Civil War, things looked like they were going to get better. Black folks became senators and businessmen and just all of these things start happening for them. And the systemic racism in this country, the Klan came out of that and they put a stop to it. And that was during the Jim Crow part of the movement. So bombing and beating up black folks and bombing churches. And you talk about radical folks. The Klan were very radical. They, mm -hmm. they can kill you. They, they could march down the street with their hoods on. Mm. and be glorified. So mm. that's my feeling that I don't think, and I hope and pray, I don't think that this marching Black Lives Matters, although there was a, a man that came out to speak to us at NIH we had during Black History Month who came to speak. And one of the questions that came up when it was Q&A time, the young lady, an Asian lady, young person, asked him how did he feel about the Black Lives Matter movement. And he said that's how the Civil Rights Movement got started. He gave me a little hope maybe something would happen, but that was a couple years ago. And then the shootings have, all the shootings that have taken place during that. And the interesting thing is that, you know, the fraternal police and the police department, they have funds to pay mm -hmm. the lawsuits, mm -hmm. but still nobody goes to jail. I mean, look at Rodney King. He was beaten and caught on camera and those guys got off. So I'm hoping that this will make a change, but it starts within government of the United States, not just the local, but up there on that hill. When um, black folks could not buy homes and all of that, then the housing discrimination came out of that. So they had to sell us home. You couldn't hold it back because of your race. And black folks would buy a little house in the neighborhood and the white folks would move out. And when they moved out, the schools went down. So mm -hmm. is that equal? Mm -hmm. You know, so it's deeply rooted in my opinion in the United States of America a constitution and they need to have amendments to change
change that. But with these politicians, they get their funding, NRA and other, you know, big lobbyist organizations to fund their reelections. So nothing ever happens because they don't want to lose their funding. And there, to me, there you have it. it has to start in the Senate, in the Congress, in those higher places. And tell me if I'm rambling, <laughs> even with the military, it was one of the racist places to go when the slaves were freed. They joined the Union mm. Army to fight the South. But yet, when it was time for the black people wanted to go in the army to get benefits and to, sh and to protect their country, they were forced with racism in there. So when they came home, they didn't get the same parade as the white soldiers did. Mm -hmm. So it's deeply rooted, and it's I don't know if this march is going to change. It may make a, I don't know, I pray that it, it helps, but I think once... When you hurt the economy, that's when change happens. And us as black people, we have to do that. We have to control our dollar and to make a change. And then things happen. I want to talk to you a little bit about your childhood, your blackness growing up, the things that you witnessed growing up, your parents, and yeah. segregation. You, me and Ryan have had lots of talk about segregation, and you actually said it wasn't the worst thing because the black dollar was kept in the community. There were yeah. black doctors, black lawyers, black midwives, black convenience stores, black banks, everything. So I want you yeah. to talk a little bit about all of that, but start in your childhood and maybe even your earliest memory of being a black girl and the segregation that you you saw and that you faced growing up? Well, I grew up in a, the beginning of my life, early elementary school. We lived, now they call it extended, I guess, Capitol Hill, I don't know, right off New Jersey Avenue between L Street and K Street in D.C. Mm -hmm. And every um, shop on the corner was black-owned. They called it beauty parlor then. That was black-owned. The shoemaker, or high, um, they call it the shoe shop, or but we used to call it the shoemaker. The cleaners, the barber. We did have one corner store because there weren't big Safeways and all of that then, at least I remember, because we had the market where you went to buy your fresh vegetables, a farmer's market. So the DGS was, if i mistaken, it was Jewish-owned, and then there was a Chinese laundry, but everybody else, all the other shopkeepers were black, and the teachers and the doctors, but we all lived in the same community. Mm -hmm. Now, I in my elementary school, I don't remember having white teachers at all, not until I went to high school. In elementary and junior high school, all my teachers were black. So we didn't have the, I guess, the, the racism. The first time that I guess it was racism, it was something that you wrote in a piece and you said that, you know, in elementary school, you remember somebody using the N-word. And that brought a memory up to my forefront. My sister and I went downtown D.C. and I'm pretty sure the store was Neisner and couldn't have been no more than maybe 
eight, nine, ten years old, and my sister was, you know, four years, five years older than me. And we walked into the store, and we went down to the basement. I'm following her, and there were two white ladies there as we passed the counter. And I'll never forget this. And she said to the other lady, okay, you better watch them because you know how they are. And I didn't know what that meant at the time. And then she reached out under the counter and had a little small-looking baseball bat. And I remembered that, but I don't, I guess nothing happened because whatever my sister was down there to do, we did it and we went on back home. Mm-hmm. But I never spoke about it. And that's the first time that I remember that. And then after we moved from that location, we moved out to Southeast, an area called Benin Heights. And at the time, it was still some whites living in the general area. If you have to walk up the hill to go to, I think it, I remember Calls Hill or something like that it was called we walking up and there were apartments and houses of course on the way up there and white kids mostly boys would you know would call us and say names and throw rocks and stuff at you like that but in return when the grocery this is when the grocery stores delivered groceries when they would come in our neighborhood the boys would do the same thing with them you know throw rocks or beat them up and you know just but it was in return Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I do remember that. But mostly I did not run into a lot just because I guess we all always lived in a black neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So I didn't I didn't come across a lot of racism in the terms of, of um, you know, they calling, uh, you know, eating us up and, and things like that, or unless I was just oblivious and not aware of it. But, you know, we only went to black-owned shops. So, and even in the Jewish shop, they were very open and accommodating. We didn't have the issue like some people. But I do know that after when black people were moving out into the suburbs, that's when a lot of the issues happened. We, my family, my mother, you know, wasn't, we were, we grew up poor. You know, we didn't move out into the suburbs. We stayed right within the inner city. Mm-hmm. And we had a big boys and girls club and the churches. So that might have helped um, also. Are you a social drinker? Do you enjoy wind down Wednesdays with your girlfriends on Zoom after work? Did you have a little bit too much to drink once and woke up with a hangover? Well, Goody's Hangover is more than the natural supplements you've seen before for treating hangovers. With a history rooted in analgesics and putting an end to tough pain, Goody's Hangover has the right formula to stop pain fast and provide a boost of alertness. Goody's Hangover Powder temporarily relieves minor aches and pains due to hangover, headaches, or muscle aches. It also helps restore mental alertness when experiencing fatigue or drowsiness associated with a hangover. It's also easy to use. You can toss it back or mix it with water or any other non-alcoholic beverage of your choice. Goodies understands that you can't afford to let a hangover slow you down. And for a hangover that is real tough, you need real medicine. Now you can have a fun night on Zoom with your girls without worrying about the next morning. Goodies hangovers. Real medicine for real hangovers. Fast relief with a boost of alertness.
It's so interesting that you said that because Ryan and I were talking last night and he was like, he grew up, you know, in Kansas City, Missouri, black Uh teachers, black church, big black family. He was like, I didn't have white teachers or white friends growing up. I just didn't. And even to this day, he's like, I can name the white people that are in my life on one hand. And he was just like, I didn't have, you know, experiences with white people ever growing up. So he was just like, how much that is embodied in him him and how grateful he is that he grew up hella black, you know, and how proud he is of being taught by black teachers and being led by black churches and things like that. So it's just interesting, you know, hearing that from you and also hearing that from my husband, who was a young man, you know what I mean? So it's just like, yeah, that's why I think that my personal feeling with segregation, as long as it's equal, I really don't have a problem with it. The problem comes when Fort Washington over in that area, and they are wealthy people, you know, middle class, upper middle class, and wealthy folks that live out there. But Prince George's County, I mean, there's no infrastructure. They have no shopping. They don't have the other things that you, I guess lately here, they've probably added those things. But before, those things weren't there. And the main thing, the school system was horrible. And then, like in Lando, Lanham, and Seat Pleasant and places like that, the schools had gotten so bad that they started busing. This is when the busing came along and to send the kids further out, which I and lots of black parents had a problem with that to put your six or seven year old on a school bus to go into a community Mm. where they're not wanted. It was scary. So we wanted equal. Let our schools be just as funded and as good as the schools that you're busing these children to. A black woman that from Oakland who was running for president when she was debating with Biden and she said and I don't know I can't remember the comment he made and about school busing and she didn't like it and she said yeah because one of those kids on that school bus was me and I wanted to just yell in there said black folks did not want busing Mm -hmm. didn't want to put their kids on a bus for an hour going out and an hour back into communities where they were not wanted and to be subjected to name calling and however they treated them. So I didn't agree with her saying that at all. So segregation, it should have been segregated and equal. And I don't know if the other cities, like when you go to New York, there's little Italy, there's little Chinatown, there's, you know, ethnic groups all around and I don't know because I don't know how they were treated for wanting to stay within their own community but with black folks it caused confusion amongst us sometimes we could be our worst enemy if you know what I mean with the confusion of watching the television in Madison Avenue, the advertisers say, you know, you're pretty if you look like this Mm -hmm. or if you look Mm -hmm. like that. And then, you know, processing the hair and, you know, lightening of your skin and all of that. It's been really difficult for black folks in this country. And you have seen progress because Mm -hmm. now we're proud to wear 
wear our kinky hair. You know, we're proud of our wide nose or dark skin. Mm -hmm. And I just hope that by the time my great-grandchildren get up, that this, it won't be so intense anymore, that something will happen. And we're equal. You are born in America from African descendants. When you're born, it makes you American citizen to all the rights here for American citizens. So the government, they got to do something. So before we wrap up, two more things. Raising a black son in America, what was that like for you raising my uncle? And like, were you ever worried at all? How was mothering for you? I know you were a young mother. Like, what was that like in your life having a black son? Well, having a black child, period, Mm -hmm. in raising them. And I probably was a cuckoo mother because I dressed that they have to do well. They have to do well in school. They have to not get caught up with some of the negative things that urban black kids had to deal with. I left D.C. when your mother, I think she had just turned 12. The schools had gone down because of the struggle in some of the urban, lower class, working class communities. My mother raised us in public housing, and it wasn't a bad word then. Public housing, really affordable housing. It was everybody went out to go to work. Public housing, and once again, this is the police. And the other thing too, Alex, most of the police, when I was a kid in elementary school, the police officers also were black and they walked the beat and you didn't fear them. You talked Mm -hmm. to them. They always came to the elementary school. It's officer friendly day. They lived in the community. So they, it's different than these police today who don't live in these underserved communities. They come in and they go out. And so when the public housing became where mostly non-working welfare folk, it changed. One thing was my mother raising us by herself, working three jobs. Mm. She instilled in us pride and and ethics. And even though she went to clean white folks' houses on Saturdays and went to Georgetown University during the week, um, left the house at five, worked in the athletic department, and then after work, she went to cook for priests. And then on Saturdays, because she was too prideful to take welfare, she wasn't going to have it. Mm-hmm. You know, you worked, and my father did not believe in, he called it buying on time, you know, credit. So we learned the value of working hard and being decent. And when you leave the house, you represent your family and your race when you walk out this door. Mm-hmm. And she told my brother, if you get in trouble with the police, and this may be harsh, don't call me because you know better. So we came up under, you know, a Bible-toting, strict mother and you know they didn't talk about you know mental health or any of that stuff Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. back then Mm -hmm. you know what goes on in my house stays in my house and all of that so we kind of grew up that way and it was good so you weren't going to take welfare you had to work hard and when you work hard you be appreciative of what you you had and then we went you know down the country to see you know my mother's family down there and they had all of this land and I was talking to your mother about it today I know I 
once knew how they got all of that acre, but I forgot. And it, I'm sure it had to come through during after slavery reconstruction when they were giving out the 40 acres and a mule. You know what I mean? Do you remember that? No, I don't. I don't remember that at all. But I just know going there and seeing all this land mm-hmm. that they grew up on because they grew up on the farm and had. And I was wonder wonder how that Grandma Kate and how their family got this much land. Mm-hmm. So that's my next project to go and find out how it got into our family. Oh, but you did ask me about my son, him growing up. In some sense, I think I failed him because when we moved out in Montgomery County, like I said, Victoria was 12 and it was a very mixed community, working class people living all together. Mm -hmm. And they had white friends, black friends, and, you know, you know, everybody got along and it was a great area to raise kids. But something happened, and I heard and saw signs of it early mm-hmm. in terms of him saying, oh, I don't like my hair. I wish my hair was like so-and-so. Mm-hmm. And I just went, ah, oh, you know, he's a kid. What is he talking about? And all of his little friends at the time, boys and girls, they were, Monica was one of his best friends. Her, she was half white, half Japanese. Her mother was Japanese. Narda, she was, I think somewhere in her family, they had to be some Caucasian people. In guys was Trinidadian. His mother was from Trinidad. His father was black. So there were a lot of ethnicities in the community, but I did not, and if I could go back, I would have talked to him more about how was he feeling growing up in this diverse community when coming from D.C. It mm-hmm. was just all black folks mm-hmm. that he played with. And he was a young boy, though. I think he might have been, if Victoria was 12, he was 7 or 8, you know. But as he went on and started high school, he started dating just white girls. And not that there's anything wrong, but I think I should have had more conversations with the asking why the preference or something. And I have, and you love who you love and who you want to date is okay. But it's... You think there was something more there than just... Well, yeah, but I never talked about it because I think of any race when you just focus out of your race man or woman, I think there's something there. For instance, if a black woman only want to date white guys, or a black guy only want to date white girls, or only want to date, I think I failed on that part, not having a talk about it. I just said, oh, well, maybe this is just the um, choices that he had or something. And what made me aware, there was a lady that moved in with her son who had just moved from Columbia, mm-hmm. and she came back this way, and we were sitting at the pool or something and talking, And she said she moved back up on this end because she was fearful of her son. She never said why, because he only wanted to date um, white girls and he was getting slack about it from, I guess, his white high school white peers or whatever but she started to fear for him and that's what brought it to my attention but I didn't do anything with it and mind you I don't have an issue with mixing the races really Mm -hmm. but you know but
but you have to know, I guess, your own child and mental health. Like you said, I never dealt with it. My morning routine normally consists of trying to get up a little early before the kids, getting my self-care silence in, drinking a cup of coffee or tea, and washing my face and just having a moment. There are a lot of great ways to start your day. Maybe you eat a nice healthy breakfast or meditate. But what about starting with making up your bed? Now, that doesn't really work for me because my husband is not up when I'm up. But when you make your bed in the morning, it starts a chain of daily successes. And I know this because when we are up together and we do make our beds right upon rising, I feel like the day does get off to a fresh start. What I love most about Brooklyn and Sheets is that I am more excited to walk in the room and see a freshly made bed with their beautiful sheets and offerings on them. The high quality sheets are great and at a low price. Their sheets are soft and well made, which you can't beat. And for the price, it is wonderful quality. Brooklinen was the first direct-to-consumer bedding company. They work directly with manufacturers and directly with customers. No middlemen, just a great product and Service. They offer all luxury products without the luxury markup. Brooklinen also offers a variety of sheets, colors, patterns, and materials for your lounging needs, like their classic, cool, and crisp, timeless with a matte finish, luxe, sateen, buttery, smooth cotton sheets, or my favorite, the linen, which is airy and effortlessly chic, made with the highest quality flax in the world. Needless to say, Brooklinen sheets are the perfect place to start making your mornings great. Brooklinen is so confident in their product that all their bedding comes with a lifetime warranty. So get 10% off your first order and free shipping when you use promo code HeyGirl only at brooklinen.com. Brooklinen, everything you need to live your most comfortable life. Again, that's promo code HeyGirl only at brooklinen.com for 10% off your first order. So before we wrap up, I want to talk to you about self-care. We mentioned this a little bit yesterday on the phone and how you yeah. said it, it was taboo back then. Yes. So I want to talk about in what ways was it taboo? Like, did you see mama taking care of herself or was she constantly just showing up and taking care of the family? And then for you, how did you take care of yourself or how are you taking your, care of yourself now? Well, I think now when you know better, you do better. But I think because it was such a taboo, and like I said, growing up, what goes on in this house stays in this house. They, you know, you didn't talk about it. And after I got uh, an adult and could talk to my mother like Victoria and I are, you know, mm -hmm. friends and can talk, she did express things. One thing that she, and during the time that she was doing all that working, mm -hmm. my sister did didn't have a teenage life because she had to take care of Russell and I. So that caused issues for her. And, and it was a lot. It was a lot of burden. I remember I was still working downtown and Victoria, I think she probably was middle school, and she wanted to go to the mall. This is when kids would take the bus 
safety and go to the mall and all that. And she called me and asked me if she could go. And I said, Victoria, you know you can't go. You got to um, watch Torrance till I get home. And so she said to me, why do I have to do that? That's your child. And that opened up my eyes to listen to her and tell my sister. I can imagine how she felt that she had no childhood. So when she turned 18, she ran off and got married. It wasn't successful because my mother, you do as I say. Mm. And kids are to be seen and not heard. And I'm sure that's the way they were raised. And I could tell that she was tired, and but she always put us first, so she didn't do any self-care. Other than you go to church and you pray to God and God will help you. Mm-hmm. So that's how we grew up. You know, nobody knows the trouble. I've seen nobody but Jesus, you know. She came in um, doing that era and going to church and listening to the preacher preach. Maybe with, you know, the psychology for her that she needed at the time. But real self-help that we talk about today, I'm for sure she didn't take care of herself that way. And me, you know, being a young mother, and I shared this with Victoria, that my parenting skills, I parent out of fear that I did not want them to be a statistic. You know, black, young mother, and what do you expect from, you know, her Mm -hmm. kids? to be. I didn't want them to be a statistic. So I put the pressure on them and didn't listen to, you know, how they were feeling. How about now? How do you take care of yourself now? Now I take care of myself. I don't do the formal, as you say, counseling, but I talk it out. I talk it out with Victoria. I've always talked to even raising the children. I always talk to older women that I respected, like at church and things like that. And I have a lady at the office now when, uh, and you know, I've had issues, you know, with Torrance and I and talking out to her because she can be unbiased about the situation. So I do talk more about my feelings, inner thoughts, and, you know, and I talk it out. When we first had to stay home to work and being in the house just 24-7 and I started to feel the isolation Mm -hmm. and loneliness, you know. I did pick up the phone and call my friend from the office to talk it out with and she, you know, helped me get through it because I kept saying the isolation is real and why does God want me to be here by myself, you know, isolated I don't understand this, I'm a good person and then I start thinking well maybe I did something you know, I know better and when you know better you do better Mm -hmm. and reading of course self-help books Well what are you reading Nana? Tell me I'm not reading anything right now. Do you have any favorite books that you would recommend to folks listening, any young black folks listening who want to, you know, just dive into new literature or even old literature? Well, I'll have to get them out of my bookcase because, you know, I'm old and I can't remember titles. (laughs) (laughs) But I certainly would send them to you. Yes, send them to me and I'll put them in the episode notes for sure. Yeah, I will send them to you. And I think about my mom a lot and how she sacrificed and, and got through life. And one thing she did share with me, my father, who's from Sumter, South Carolina, 
And I was proud, man, and he did not want to work for, as he said, a white man. And he tried, and his brothers, numerous. I remember early on, I was very young, they had a poultry shop right on um, 11th and R in Street in D.C. And next thing I know, that had failed. And then his older brother, Chester, they, um, I think Uncle Bill was in it too, they tried a restaurant. So his businesses, you know, Mm -hmm. they did. And he wasn't as strong as my mother, but he turned to alcohol and he became an alcoholic. Mm. And that caused my mother and father to separate. And she did say this was, oh, I don't know how old I was then, but I think I was probably maybe in my 30s or so. And she did say if she understood alcoholism like she does now, she probably would not have left him. But what she knows now, maybe she would have helped him. And um, yeah, and so, yeah. You know, I'm just so grateful for you and your story and your major, major role in raising me. I have so many fond memories with you. Yeah. We were road dogs. And now, you know, the fact that you are <laughs> still here to love on my children and yeah, I, I appreciate that, Alexandra. Mm-hmm. I, and I say, and I would give thanks every Thanksgiving that I am so proud of Victoria and Torrance and where they are and looking at you and that all of this is started from me and how the cycle and you always want your child to be how do you say the next generation does better my mom you know she looks at us and say our generation did better and then I can look at Victoria and Thorns and say how well they've done and now looking at you with your family it makes me weak when I think about it that mm-hmm. I am still here and I can witness this and I'm so thankful to God. Man, yeah. I love you. I love you. And I tell people all the time, I'm a woman of faith. And without God, I don't think this would have happened because he brought me through and protected me, you know, and, and I can see the work that I've done. Mm-hmm. Nana, yeah. thank you. Thank you. I oh, love thank you. you. And I, I mean, I'm honored that you wanted to hear my story. Always. I will keep this forever and ever and ever and ever. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show today. Please rate, subscribe, and review. Also, feel free to share with a friend. We love having our community grow. Music is by DC's own Kokai. The Hey Girl podcast is produced by Wayne Bertram and me, Alex L.